In Christ, we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I identify with the Apostle Peter in the Bible, not simply because I share his name, but because he is so delightfully human. At the end of the Gospel of John, the Apostle Peter demonstrates this very human behavior in a remarkable and remarkably inopportune moment, one with which I think we can all identify. Standing with the risen Lord, having just been restored from the shame of his denial, given purpose for the rest of his earthly life, Peter jumps forward with the question of comparison. Hey, what about him? What about that guy over there? Put in context, Peter's question in John 21 appears to be this bizarre non sequitur. Why now? Why ask this question at this time? But comparison and competition are so easily an ever-present reality in our lives, in our minds, even at the best of times. The question of whether we have enough, how we stack up, is all too readily in our hearts and on our lips, in the form of insecurity. What about him? What about her? And really what we're asking is me. To the followers of Christ living in Rome and in Austin, the Apostle Paul writes, by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, not so among us. Not so in the church. Among you, things are different. By the power of the Holy Spirit, the mind of Christ is taking shape among you. So your thoughts and your lives are different. We are continuing this morning with our series, the back of Paul's epistle to Roman Christians. And the majority of these chapters, as we discussed last week, are about living together in light of the gospel. In light of all that Paul has unpacked regarding the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus in the first section of the letter. Because of this reality, the good news of what God has done in Christ, life together takes a particular shape, a distinct character. Life together, we might even say, is possible. That's what our reading this morning, Romans 12, 3 to 8, begins to outline. And I'd like this morning to highlight for us two elements of what the Apostle Paul describes here that make life together in Christ a possibility. First, just to kind of gather these in our mind. First, how worth is weighed. How worth is weighed. And second, the logic of the gift. So first, how worth is weighed. Anytime that human beings engage in the practice of comparison, like Peter in John 21, a certain rubric, a certain criteria is involved. Some standard by which people are measured, right? Think of Goldilocks and the three bears, their porridge, right? Too hot, too cold, and just right, just right is revealed to be the standard. It's easy enough to read a simple gloss on Paul's admonishment in verse 3 of Romans 12, something like, be humble, right? Have humility. And that's certainly an element of what Paul is suggesting that should characterize those who live in community in Christ. Don't think more highly of yourself than you ought. Don't make your own advancement the focus of your inner life, your thought patterns, 
right? Be humble, as Kendrick Lamar sang. But there's something more here as well, something a little more complex. In light of the gospel, Paul's command is that the people of God think of themselves with sober judgment, in accordance with the faith that God has distributed to each of you. It's kind of mysterious. And precisely what Paul has in mind here has been the subject of debate. Some see it as though Paul is pointing to the faith, the gospel, this body of teaching that the church has received, this set of convictions that we'll recite in a few moments in the creed, and that saying that that is the standard by which Christians should understand themselves, should assess themselves. That is, we, we no longer consider our worth in comparison to the measures of this world, like what we've accomplished, the number of degrees we have, or how much we earn, or how well our children seem to be doing, our relational status, our cultural identity. But rather, Paul seems to be suggesting, we, we view ourselves in relation to God's pleasing and perfect will, as we read last week, as expressed in the faith delivered to the church. It relates to our gospel reading this morning, like the disciples are arguing about who's the greatest. And Jesus' response is not to be like, that's a stupid question, don't think like that. Rather, he redefines what greatness actually is, right? He redefines it in terms of his sacrificial love, the pattern of his own life. He's like, you want to be first? Take on this form of life. Assess yourself according to this standard. So that's one way of thinking about what Paul is saying here. And others will see that Paul here is emphasizing the distribution of faith by God to individual believers. Like everybody gets a measure of faith. This keeps with Paul's teaching throughout Romans that like faith is this gift of God. And Paul here they see, these people see, is emphasizing God's initiative, giving this gift. So there's no room for human pride because faith is a gift from God. Whichever kind of interpretation we might favor, what Paul is articulating here involves this view of ourselves in relation to the gospel, to the faith that God has given first and foremost. That becomes the lens through which we view ourselves. This kind of posture invariably diminishes our ability to compare and contrast ourselves with one another. Whatever jockeying for honor that might take place on a human level, rooted in wealth or status or perceptions of our own righteousness, that all pales, Paul is saying, in comparison to the richness, the glory of what God has done for you in Christ. So who is first, best, highest, whatever differences exist among us because of culture, worldview, ethnicity, they become nearly irrelevant when set in the context of God's glorious purposes. His purpose is to make you his own, to make his people a people together. In a very tangible way, Paul argues that our value, our worth, is to be measured in terms of the faith we've received as a means of countering value judgments that we might readily go to in the world. What God has done in Jesus, Paul is saying, is so glorious. What he's given you is so unfathomably generous that any standing we have for boasting is removed. Any standard by which we might compare, which, by which we might jockey for position, is eradicated. All of us together, different though we are, share the fact that we are recipients of grace. 
The kingdom of God reveals us all to be beggars. I was on a plane this week and the couple sitting next to me were watching the Avengers Endgame on an iPhone. It was adorable. They were like sharing an earbud and like huddled together around this tiny screen. And at the climactic moment when all the heroes of every Marvel movie that was ever made appear and help in the fight against the villains, when all of them appear and are called to assemble, this couple silently honoring the people around them on the, on the plane erupted in like quiet applause and cheering. Like they were super excited. I suspect it wasn't the first time they saw the movie, but they were like jazzed about the climax of this movie. And we love it when this team comes together, right? When the moment when they figure it out, the pieces come together and it works out. But on our own, we are terrible at living that vision out. Sociologist Robert Putnam has pointed out that while we often hold the slogans like diversity is our strength, in actuality, communities where there's a high degree of difference of ethnic and cultural diversity, there is very often a serious lack of social cohesion by almost every measure. Neighbors are less likely to trust each other, less likely to participate together in community initiatives. Suspicious. This makes a great deal of sense when you consider different cultures, the different ways we measure value and worth. And when you put that in the context of a scarcity mindset where we wonder, what about me? It makes life this zero-sum game of winners and losers. We're so very drawn to this picture of unity in diversity. There's something of the eternal in it that draws us. But we're so very poor at making it work on our own. And what Paul's words suggest here is that in Christ, the people of God have been given this kind of transcendent gift, this transcendent standard, this transcendent story by which we all share as equals together. Embodied in Christ, articulated in the faith the church has for us. Such that any room for boasting, any room for comparisons of value based on our slight differences in the world is removed. Such that occasions for pride are, are lessened. And that we all stand in relation to the purposes of God as joyful recipients. This is good news. Because it frees us from a grasping, competitive way, driven way of life, an exhausting, zero-sum way to live. And it frees us to live together when we're not driven by tribal interest or self-interest, but where we can share out of the abundance we have and are receiving in Christ, where we are empowered to live and serve one another. This brings us to the second point, the logic of the gift. At the very center of Christian life is God's gift of himself to us. That's what we celebrate each week at this table, not what we have accomplished, what we bring, but what we receive. And the enormity of this gift transforms the patterns of our minds, our life together. This is Paul's point throughout these final chapters of Romans. And in verses four and five of our reading, Paul famously uses the language of the human body to describe the church's life together. By the grace of God, we're drawn together with our differences, just as the different parts of the body. 
And as a human body can't function without differences among its constituent parts, so the differences in the body of Christ are part of God's design and purpose. They're a gift of God for the church's good functioning. They're The differences don't exist for like differing value and differing standards by which we would compare and contrast ourselves, but for God's good functioning of the church. A long time ago, I I can't even remember the nature of the argument, but I was having some serious argument with friends and I remember driving in my car after the argument, just being like so frustrated with them, disagreeing with them. And I, I, like I said, I can't remember the exact nature of it, but I remember thinking and being so frustrated, wishing that these friends would simply be more like me. Like, why can't they just think the same way I think? And in that moment, as I was driving my like 1993 Honda Civic, great car, beat up, I was young, I think it was the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And the thought struck me how absolutely boring the world would be if that were true. If everyone thought like me, if everyone adopted my perspective, What a recipe for sheer inanity that would be. It's kind of like the vision of the Borg in Star Trek, right? Assimilate, right? Resistance is futile. Eradicate difference. Be one with us. Be one with Peter, right? It's not the Borg, it's the Peter or whatever. It's striking to us, to me, that at the moment of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit's poured on all flesh, The word of God comes to people from around the world in their own languages. They hear the truth of God's goodness, his grace, in their own heart languages. In Revelation, every tribe and tongue is seen around the throne of God. And in the end, the nations of the world bring their unique, specific gifts, these glorious contributions to the worship of God. The differences among us are part of God's good intention for the church. Not that we might measure ourselves against one another, but that we might together glorify him and glorify him through our service one to another and through the entire body's priestly service to the world. And that applies not just like on the macro level, but also locally as well. Paul here is writing to a small group of Christians in Rome that he has never met, and that's important. He didn't found the church in Rome. He'd never been there. Yet he writes with confidence that these various gifts, the result of God's generosity, are present among that community, across ethnic lines and social divisions. In this community, he's confident that there are teachers and prophets. There are those who are graced to lead and to show mercy, those who are gifted in service and generosity. Christians in this time in Rome were were spread among various different house churches, it appears, And so this might suggest that he anticipates the spread of these gifts across these various house churches. It's not like he's saying all the gifts that could be found will be found in any one grouping of Christians. And here at Church of the Cross, we are joyfully, by necessity, connected to other churches and communities that have gifts that we don't have, that perspective that we need. We need them. They need us. Yet Paul's confidence about the local presence and expression of these gifts is notable. Among us here, online, in this room, there are gifts present to be used for the good functioning of Christ's body by God's design as a result of his generosity. That's a challenging but good thing. It's challenging because there are differences that we have, different gifts that we bring. 
And that's often the occasion for misunderstanding or even conflict. And we might be tempted to highlight or value certain gifts, certain perspectives over and above others. But it's good because these various gifts allow for the body to function together, allow us to glorify God in a holistic fashion. If a community is all prophecy and all teaching, that's simply a lot of words with no action. And the gifts of diligent leadership, of administration are necessary. Those wired for mercy, for giving, are needed that we might glorify God in word and deed. You have gifts to contribute. Gifts of teaching, generosity, leadership, mercy, prophecy. And the list here in Romans 12 is not exhaustive. Paul has other lists, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4. And there's a clear suggestion when you put all those together that they're not like a complete list, that there are other ways the Spirit is at work. All of these gifts are an aspect of God's great gift of himself, the gift of his Son and Spirit. God has gifted you as one who is in Christ with your particular background and makeup, with your particular disposition and limitations. He's gifted you in a specific and glorious way for participation with him in the church. In his very good book, Courage and Calling, Gordon Smith writes about this concept of vocational holiness. This book is so good if you're like, what am I called to do? Who has God made me to be? And at this certain point, Smith describes this scenario, this imaginary scenario of a hospital ER that's overwhelmed and chaotic. He, he wrote the book like 20 years ago, but it feels like it could have been written yesterday in light of everything we're experiencing. But Smith describes this hypothetical scenario and outlines then potential responses like the different gifts listed here in Romans 12 and elsewhere. He suggests some will, will see the chaotic situation and immediately be drawn toward the instruction and guidance that is needed. Teachers. Others will, will recognize the need for structure and order, the, the gifts of leadership, administration. Others will be drawn to the obvious, immediate need of those who are suffering right now. Gifts of mercy. Still others will recognize the need for resources and be able to marshal them, giving and generosity. Lastly, others may, by the grace of God, be empowered to call intention to the rank injustice of the situation and with keen spiritual insight, call others to live in line with the truth, the gift of prophecy. There are, of course, other gifts, other possibilities, but you get the idea. Different gifts in the body, droplets of God's grace, allow the church to live and function as God intends. You have been so graced, and through you, we together have been graced by the Holy Spirit. So how is God calling you to contribute to the good functioning of Christ's body? Perhaps here at COTC, perhaps in the body of Christ here in Austin in a larger kind of way, that we might together glorify God and bless others. In whatever way he might be calling you, Paul's words here are a charge to do so to do so with generosity, diligently, cheerfully, in line with the faith that we have received. In our reading this morning from Exodus 1 and 2, we have glorious examples of this. In the midst of terrible evil, these two midwives, at tremendous risk to themselves, use their expertise 
to subvert Pharaoh's oppression and to serve the purposes of God. And they reap the abundance of his blessing for the giving of their gift. And similarly, in heartbreaking fashion, Moses' own mother entrusts the precious gift of her child unto the Lord and has him joyfully returned. This is the logic of the gift in God's economy, God's kingdom. In Christ, we each, we together, have received an abundance such that we freely and with joy can share what has been given with one another as the body and with the world. We have received so much such that we don't need to ask, what about him, what about her, and really, what about me? So secure are we in the love of God that we can be freed from scarcity and competition and power to serve and to bless, even at great cost. Certain of God's promise that whatever is given for his sake, in accord with the faith, will be returned a hundred times in this life or the next, and will reap a harvest 30, 60, and 90 times more. So thanks be to God for the gifts that he has given. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.